Flip with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. We are talking in our new series, Family Economics. We're talking about why families matter. And so this will be just a few weeks here. And we're going to start with masculine men and what we mean by that. Genesis 2.15, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Then Yahweh God took the man and set him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And then Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29, The honor of young men is their strength, and the majesty of old men is their gray hair. Let's pray. Our Father in God, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, before there are families, there are husbands and wives in the covenant of marriage, Before there are husbands and wives, there are men and women, image bearers of God. And before there are image bearers of God, there is the triune God with a plan for the world. Any discussion about humanity and what it means to be human must start with God. Any discussion about what it means to be human, to be male and female, must start with God. When considering the trail of destruction left in the wake of Western civilization's suicidal rejection of Christ, it has become as important as ever to clarify why families matter. Uh, It is a profound need today to know why the family is important. What does it take to have a strong biblical family, especially when the world hates such things? Uh, What is required of men and women, uh, as men and as women? What is required of fathers and mothers? What is required of husbands and wives, uh, parents and children? What is required when the family's creational priority is under tremendous assault? Moreover, a question that is downstream from here, uh, what happens when our churches become overly feminized? When women are ruling the local church and bossing around the effeminate male pastor. It happens all the time. Worse yet, what happens when women become our rulers, which Isaiah 3.12 warns is a sign of judgment? I can't help but think of the news with what's going on in the Middle East and uh, even in Ukraine and now in Israel. Uh, they, they have time to post pictures of their women carrying guns in the military, which God finds abhorrent, according to Deuteronomy 20. But they hate the family, and so they do not care. What happens in these situations? What about society? What happens when men abdicate their glory and honor in leading their homes, and women abdicate their glory and honor in building their homes, opting instead for open marriages, uh, no marriages, no-fault divorce, uh, unfaithfulness to one another, transgenderism, and of course, homosexuality. What happens to society when all of that 
goes away, and I think we're reaping the benefits of that, obviously. Now, it will become very important for us to name the sins that have led us to this pitiable condition. We'll need to name them, all right? And you'll need to evaluate yourselves because we need to be clean before the Lord. We need to be holy before him. However, that said, it will also be very important for us to make sure that we understand exactly what God requires to go back to the blueprints for masculinity, femininity, and basic sexual ethics. What precisely does God require of men as men, and what does God require of women as women? What does he require? What does he require of parents? Because we'll talk about that too. And, and children. What does God require of all of us? In other words, nobody gets out of this scot-free here. We're all in this, you know, truly in this together and not in the weird COVID idiot stuff. So my goal in this series is to essentially answer two key questions. One, where did we go wrong? And then two, having repented, what exactly are we to do next? Uh, so those would be kind of the framework for, for this series. Um, simply knowing that there is a problem doesn't solve the problem, right? Uh, knowing that you have a flat tire doesn't make it go away. Knowing there's a problem doesn't solve the problem. In fact, I would argue that one doesn't really know the extent of a problem until a formidable solution is provided. Otherwise, we'll be tempted to think that the problem is actually no problem at all. Oh, the tire's flat. That happens. It's fine. Drive on it. And then you see what happens next. Which is all to say, welcome to America's death throes. <laughs> uh, the suicidal rejection of Christ has been our downfall. And that has leaked into everything, especially the family. So we need solutions, and we needed them yesterday. So we begin with masculine men. The men are first because men bear a certain responsibility that a, the woman does not. But next week, Lord willing, we'll discuss feminine women. So you'll have your turn, ladies, next week. Um, afterwards, we're going to dive into husbands and wives, and then we'll be on to parents and children. And at that point, Christmas will be upon us. It's okay to listen to Christmas music now. I mean, it's okay in June, too, but I won't judge you. Well, let's look at key, some of these three key passages. What does it mean to be a masculine man? What do I mean by that? Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. We'll jump to Proverbs and then to Ephesians. Then Yahweh God took the man and set him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. All right. Uh, very simple, straightforward. When God created man, he did so in order to make him a worshiping Lord. He made him a lowercase l, Lord, a worshiping Lord. What uh, Adam was to cultivate and keep the garden sanctuary. Uh, he watched God make the garden because he needed to know how to make more gardens in the world, and that was his call. Uh, it was not, this garden sanctuary was not to be a place of religious apostasy or idolatry. That was not what it was made for. The garden was man's meeting house, a meeting house with God. And this same language of cultivating and keeping shows up with the priests in Numbers chapter 3, the priests who were charged with working and protecting the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, so that language shows up again, which is very interesting because that theme continues on into the New Testament where we're all priests uh, in, underneath the high priest, Jesus Christ. 
and we are still called. God didn't rescind that command to, to cultivate and to keep. That's still an ongoing process. So Adam's call was to, to build culture, to bring the rest of the world under the authority of the garden's God as a subordinate Lord. Adam was to be a subordinate Lord. And in the cultural mandate of Genesis 1, man was told to be fruitful and what? Multiply, right? Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, to conquer the world and subdue the world. That's what he was told to do. And that's what men do. Men conquer. They conquer things. Uh, the engine's broken. We don't know why. We will find out the reason. And uh, especially some of you that have an engineer mind, you will tear everything out down to the engine block. Ah, we found the issue. It was just a sensor. <laughs> if you tear the engine apart, it better not just be a sensor. <laughs> You're going to have work on your hands. But that's what men do. They conquer. God has given men testosterone so that they might worship God faithfully and serve God energetically as men. That's why he's created us to be men, to, to serve in this way. And this is why young boys like playing with fire, guns, and tools. Uh, we played with fire at our house a little bit yesterday. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the situation was slightly precarious for a second. Um, but that's why boys play with fire and guns and tools. Some things need a defense. Some things need to be defended. So... You know, we go up to, to Pop's house and we shoot the 22, uh, oftentimes on holidays, but, all, you know, anytime. And the boys, you know, we get out there and we shoot the guns and have a good time. And the reason that's important is because some things need to be defended, right? So you need to know how to defend. So that requires a certain firepower. Uh, some things need a refining burn. Uh, th there's really uh, something about sitting around a campfire burning some wood, fellowshipping, eating food, making s'mores, making memories. Some things need to burn, and other things need to be put together. That's why we have invented tools. Some things are to be torn apart and then put back together, deconstructed, reconstructed. Um, but they're supposed to, boys especially, are supposed to possess a sense of adventure. They're, they have a sense of adventure built within them, uh, and, and America really wouldn't exist the way that it does without that sense of adventure, uh, without those who were persecuted in England who came and said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to start something different here based on God and his word. And so, you know, we've walked away from that, as we've said, but that adventurous spirit is there. I love what Chester, Chesterton said it best. He said, an adventure is only an inconvenience rightly considered. An inconvenience is only an adventure wrongly considered. Self-controlled men with strength in their being see an inconvenience as an opportunity for adventure. Right? Oh, we have this thing to do, this thing to build, this thing to conquer. This is going to be fun. That, I like how Chesterton puts that. Because in that mindset, there's no inconvenience. There's just an opportunity for exploration, for development, for uh, spending your energy on something glorious. Now, for men, an obstacle is, to say it another way, is something to overcome. It's not something to fear. There are, there are and that's the difference between Saul and David, right? <laughs> this, this, this giant, he's so big, we're going to lose. And David said, he's so big, how can I miss? You know, 
This is an opportunity to overcome, to man up, to step up, and not something to fear. And, and that's a God-given opportunity to solve the problem and make it right. That's what men are supposed to be, problem solvers. They're meant to fix things. They see something in disarray that needs to be ordered. Something that is not working efficiently needs to be improved. That is part of what masculinity is all about. Um, if there's a problem and you make it right, what do we call that? We call that justice or righteousness. So that's what men are supposed to be. And after all, man is a visionary. Um, God is the, is the creator and man is the under authority uh, replicator creator, shall we say. He replicates and he builds and he watches God build this garden. He says, okay, I'm going to need an ax for that part and I should go figure out how to make that. And he just, maybe he just made up the word on the spot. And a hammer, some tools. We have a log cabin to build. That's what men are supposed to be, replicator creators. Um, God gave man two eyes, two feet, and two hands so that he could see where he's going while building something magnificent. Being placed in the world as a Lord means being placed in the world to be a husbandman. He not only rules the world on God's behalf, but he multiplies the land, making it fruitful. He takes responsibility. He works hard. He makes the land abundant with resources. And then guess what he does? He settles himself down to enjoy some Sabbath rest in order to protect what he has made. He guards what he has made. And that's why you think of the garden story. God puts Adam there to guard it as a Lord. And we know what happened. He didn't guard. But what does God do with his creation? He guards it. He guards it. He rolls up his sleeves and says, I will send my son and then we will deal with this. That's what the cross is. God protecting the world. Because what is the world going to do? Ask for another flood. <laughs> so he settles down to protect what he has made. And what happens when someone or something, be it a serpent or an intruder, comes into man's domain? Well, he delivers his family. He delivers his family. He mimics the Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the deliverer. That's what men are supposed to act like. Uh, men are Lord protectors. They are cultivators. Um, deliverance and protection requires tempered anger, a, a meekness that knows when and where to use proper strength. To be angry uh, with the right things in the right way with a measured response of justice. That is masculinity. And it's zeal with knowledge. It's not tomfoolery. It's zeal with knowledge. And this is why young boys need to learn how to shoot guns and sharpen knives. Um, they, can, they can go fishing. They can go hunting. They can do things for God's glory. But that's because that's, there's, there's an impulse there. It's built in. True and biblical masculinity requires self-discipline because we want men to defend others in a God-honoring way. Masculinity is rooted in these creational principles, so uh, teach your boys to shoot, basically. Girls, you can learn too. It's, all, it's fun for the whole family. Proverbs 20, verse 29. The honor of young men is their strength, and the majesty of old men is their gray hair. The word honor here in Proverbs 20, verse 29, it can also be translated as glory. Uh, there's a couple different words in Hebrew for that, but 
it can be, you could call it glory as well, but we know from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, that man is the image and, and glory of God. Man is the image and glory of God. Women are the glory of man. We'll get into that next week. But here the Bible teaches that the glory of men, particularly young men, is their strength or their power. Manhood is, is glorious. It's tr it truly is good to be a man. Um, men are to be strong lords. They're to be strong protectors, strong keepers of righteousness, strong in justice and righteousness. And entering into marriage, they are to be strong heads of the covenant, loving their wives with discipline, self-control, responsibility, and godliness. We'll get into that for the marriage sermon, but when we speak of honor and glory, we're speaking in the language of Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8 says, what is man? What is man? That's what verse 4 asks. And the answer is, you crown him with glory and majesty. The same Hebrew word is used in both places. So when we think about strength, we usually think about physical strength, and indeed that is part of it. Um, all of us men uh, can afford to be more disciplined with food, exercise, and training. Yes, we can. Uh, we're called to be strong, not weak. Uh, weakness for a man is effeminacy, it is laziness, it is carnality. Men today are largely weak because of diet, um, frankly excessive beer drinking, uh, and hormone suppression, um, bad foods, bad air, bad water, you name it. It's kind of all contri contributing factors today. Um, but that said, being strong physically does aid in carrying out the calling that God has given to men. So masculinity means being strong and strength is our glory. You see the connection? <clears throat> There's other types of strength. Strength in using our minds to study scripture. There's a strength there, a fortitude of the mind, we might say. Uh, there is uh, strength in learning history because we don't want to repeat the bad stuff. Uh, there's strength in obeying the Bible, uh, strength in developing a political theology so we can engage the world. Remember in the ancient world of Israel, the men were at the gates as judges and elders, and they were deciding cases, handling disputes, uh, offering wise counsel. Hey, I'm thinking of starting a new business. What do you think I should do? Um, generally, they were there to protect what comes in and out of their community. That's why they were at the gates. They were guardians of their community. And thus, strength requires, true strength in the fullness of a biblical definition requires the moral, physical, spiritual, and rational fortitude necessary to be the leaders God has called us to be. It's strength not just physically, but in every aspect of your being. Ecclesiastes 8.1 says it very plainly, a man's wisdom illumines his face and causes his stern face to beam. So wisdom and glory are bound up in men. Now, go to Ephesians chapter 5. After Romans and the Corinthians, you get Galatians and Ephesians. Verse 25. <clears throat> Husbands, love your wives. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and what? Gave himself up. 
There's a phrase you can underline if you do that in your Bible. Just gave himself up for her, for the church, the bride. Now, I chose this verse, and we're going to come back to it later in the series, in order to highlight this important point. Husbands and, and men generally are to act like men, to act like Jesus, who did what? Gave himself up. Expended his energies, giving of himself. Biblical masculinity means taking responsibility, even if it wasn't your fault. Um, Jesus took on the sins of the world, none of which were his. Taking responsibility means that we do not make excuses, we do not complain, uh, we do not blame shift and play the victim. And I'll tell you, this is a great temptation for men, if we're honest, right? It is a great temptation. Well, it's not my fault, it's Biden's fault. Well, yeah, it probably is his fault, but... <laughs> right? It's not my fault. It's this is the reason. And I will tell you, just even personally, that's a great temptation. It's a great temptation to want to make excuses, to want to complain, uh, to, to you know, blame shift, play the victim. Um, it's, it's cowardly. And manning up, when we say manning up, it means being fitted for godly vocation, not cowering but being fitted for godly vocation. In the ancient world, it meant having gravitas. There's a, a gravity, a, a, a seriousness, a dignity, an integrity uh, when it comes to manhood. And in biblical categories, it's the word glory of which we just spoke. The glory means acting in concert with God's prescriptions, which means that masculinity, if it is to be masculinity, is God-centered. Therefore, masculine men die for others. Masculine men die for others. Men do the dying. Women do the birth thing. <laughs> they create life. They sustain life. Men do the dying. Men go to war. They do the dying. They give themselves up. Women make things beautiful and pretty. And if you're a good man, you let your wife do that. And they create life and they sustain life. And there's a difference there, but that's what I wanted to highlight from Ephesians there. Gave himself up. That's what it means to be a masculine man. And that's why this, this message was called Masculine Men, because, you know, men today, it's like, well, what, you know, what is that? Um, we need sort of an additional adjective to throw onto that noun. Masculine men means biblical, rooted in righteousness. I will die for you, my life for yours. They're not selfish men. Instead, they lay down their lives for their families, their friends, their communities, their nations. They go to war. They die for their communities, their way of life. And women were not to go to war, according to Deuteronomy 20. And that's a man's task. And at any rate, the point I want us to see here is that within, marriage, within the marriage relationship, it's the man who represents Christ to the uttermost who dies, not the woman. She must represent the church in her submission, her obedience, and respect, but the man must be willing to give himself for her unto death. And masculinity at its core is a strong, bleeding sacrifice for others. So how shall we then live? <clears throat> well, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, he rather winsomely makes a remarkably prescient point. It's very wise. He writes, 
We continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You probably have heard this quote before. It's a very popular one. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect them vir of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. Now, the principle that Lewis outlines here applies to our precarious circumstances today. We want all the virtue, all the virtues, benefits, and blessings of God's good order for masculine manhood without the actual structure God has put in place for it. So we want masculinity, what we, we want what masculinity provides, but we emasculate masculinity from God's prescribed order. Uh, the world attempts to castrate men, both metaphorically and, frankly, literally, while demanding strength and glory and honor. Generally speaking, this is why the transgender demons have been allowed to run wild. Cowardly men in our churches who have abdicated their responsibilities have allowed this. Can we just acknowledge that? But we want order in society. We want peace, right? Peace in our time. <laughs> we want peace. But we, we, we want strength. We want virtue. We want the fruit of all of this. But how do you get any of that fruit if the tree is dead? You have a gelding, Lewis says, but you want to reproduce the horse, which cannot be done. There is no masculinity apart from God's creational order. Now, Basic to the created order is the structure of God's law. That is a very basic thing in the creation order. It's God's law. God has made men to be masculine. goes without saying now, but he's also created women to be feminine. And they're supposed to be that way. He's designed men to carry out their stations as men. Uh, that's why uh, men shouldn't look like women and vice versa. Uh, in short, masculinity is the structure of manhood. Masculinity, in terms of God's law, is the structure of manhood. But there's also the direction of the human heart. God's creation is, is beautiful. It is good. Uh, men can take great joy in being men. You don't have to apologize for it. That's especially if you're a heterosexual white male. You are the worst of the worst in our culture. Um, just go to a women's march, right? Yeah, you'll, you'll find out real quickly where you stand in the pecking order. But you don't have to apologize for that. You don't need to apologize for being a man. Be a man. Enjoy it. Love it. Glory in it. Learn how to grow in it. Right? Be suitable for God's vocation. Um, I like to say be uncancelable. <laughs> and, and women, you can take great joy in being women. And you young girls and you young men, you, you boys, you guys are going to grow to be men and women and glory in that. It's beautiful. God made you that way. So embrace it. And this really is the lie of the trannies that who God has made you to be was somehow a mistake. And when you think of the, imp the, 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 the increase in big pharma drugs and the increase in sin and the increase in the toleration of such things in society, why do we think everything unravels? That's why it unravels. The emasculation of men through the vehicle of feminism is the direction in which we must not go. 
Curiously, feminism happened because men weren't men. Uh, but it also happened because women didn't want to be feminine women. <laughs> they wanted to be free from the burden of housekeeping children and, and being oriented toward their husband so that she could instead be burdened with adult male children at work, slaving away for the boss who happened to be male. She traded one form of perceived slavery for another. That's the great irony of heaven that makes God laugh at the scoffer. And we'll get into this a bit more next week, but for our purposes here today, I simply want to point out that the modern sexual devolution that's been happening for 50 plus years is the result of men and women being discontented with biblical masculinity and femininity. The structure of God's order was wrong, they deemed, and so they directed it into a sexual frenzy. And we need to recover it. I want to pivot here for, for a moment. What exactly is a man? What exactly is a man? I would submit to you that it's not merely a biologically adult male. It's not just that. What is a man? It's a biologically male. He's an adult male. Now, I've seen plenty of biologically adult males with wives and children who are utter cowards when it comes to doing hard things. Uh, they might be able to shave, but they are weak, unself-aware, overly effeminate, and incapable of managing their affairs in a way that God demands. They do not possess gravitas, uh, but instead are limp-wristed and passive. And usually these types wouldn't fare well in a fistfight where they confronted with a situation where they would need to defend themselves or their family. And I'll say one thing that is strikingly common is the fact that these men suffer from father hunger. Their own fathers were weak, and thus they are weak. Uh, and I don't just mean physically, though that is true. They're weak in self-discipline, uh, weak in logic and rhetoric, weak in thinking, uh, weak in uh, self-control, weak in personal study, um, weak in following through, keeping their word, being reliable. That's the weakness. These men are always in a frenzy because their lives are not in order, and because of it, their families, churches, and societies suffer. So we do not want lazy Larrys or people-pleasing Peters. Uh, we do not have time for passive Pauls or effeminate Everett's. The world needs self-controlled, self-disciplined men who act like men. 1 Kings 2, 1 Corinthians 16. Being female, to clarify, isn't a sin, but it's a sin for a man to play the part of a female which is what effeminacy is. Effeminacy is a softness in men where hardness is called for. So when the Bible says the glory and honor of men is their strength, and these men are weak, that's what we mean by effeminacy. And curiously enough, Isaiah 19 verse 16 promises judgment on the Egyptians, saying that they will become like women, and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of Yahweh of hosts. Men are not to tremble at other men. That's not what you're called to do. Um, if a man comes into my house in the middle of the night uninvited, he will be met with a forty-five caliber hollow point loaded pistol. Men are called to protect, not tremble. And it is disorienting in the middle of the night. That happened once. A mirror fell. I think it was a mirror, right? Off the wall. Boom. <laughs> down, the, down the stairs, I'm like, flashlight i was ready but let me tell you you go from sleeping in a dead sleep to the most alert you've ever been in your life <laughs> it's wild 
But we're called to be protectors and not tremble. Their, their men are called to be soft toward their family, but hard towards the world and the devil. Jeremiah 48, so the hearts of the mighty men of Moab in that day will be like the heart of, of a woman in labor. What's the heart of a woman in labor? <laughs> Agonizing, a little bit of joy, a little bit of pain, a little bit of fear perhaps, excitement. Jeremiah 49 says the same thing. The hearts of the mighty men of Eden will be like the heart of a woman in labor. And just when we thought when Jeremiah was finished, because he's got some things to say, he says in chapter 51, verse 30, that the mighty men of Babylon have ceased fighting. They habit the strongholds. Their might is dried up. They are becoming like women. <laughs> Again, the sin is not in the category uh, known as female, but the sin is when males act like females. And Isaiah says that it's a judgment to have a woman rule over you. Why? Because they're females? No, because the men aren't being men. That's the problem. See, men cultivate masculinity by cultivating responsibility. No excuses, no victimhood, right? The very things we admittedly run to when things get hard. Many, many young men did not have masculine fathers, and as a result, they are having to learn how to be that way. And it is a challenge. And we have patience for this, and we ought to, especially in the church. We want to have patience with this. But we also can't just ignore the issue either. Perhaps the greatest masculine sin would be abdication, right? When we flee from responsibility. It's hard to give what you don't have, which is why we need the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit each and every day. But abdication, which was Adam's chief sin, continues to plague us. And if you're called to strength, but do not pursue it, you are abdicating. If you are called to self-control, but you do not pursue it, you are abdicating. Uh, if you are called to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, which is what we're called to in 1 Corinthians 16. But if we are not pursuing it, then we are abdicating. So the question is never if you as a man will possess a form of masculinity, but which type of masculinity will you put forward? Will it be biblical and responsible, or will it be driven by big pharma's drug addicts? Will you as a man have purpose, direction, calling and vocation, the things God has in fact called you to, will you as a man exercise dominion in a God-honoring way? Will you as a man give yourself up for others in a self-giving, bleeding sacrifice? Will you fear God more than men? Will you as a man give and receive instruction? Will you as a man trust the Lord and guide your family into those lush pastures of covenantal blessing? Will you, as a man, be content with your station, cultivate your station, and be humble in all things? Will you, as a man, hate evil? Hate it. Especially the evil that comes from within. Or will you, as a man, be passive, self-deprecating in front of others, and envious, always complaining, always bored, and rarely committed to anything? Jack Donovan said in his book, The Way of Men, that there is a difference between being a good man and being good at being a man. In other words, you may very well have some skill at manhood, but you may be completely devoid of masculinity. Why? Because of virtue. I'm going to wrap up here, which means another 20. No, I'm kidding. Uh, 
Um, Douglas Jones, he characterized masculinity as the collection of all those characteristics which flow from delighting in and sacrificing bodily strength for goodness. Masculinity is you sacrificing bodily strength for goodness. Men give of themselves sacrificially, but it's for the sake of goodness, for that which is true and good and right and beautiful and God-honoring. And the Bible calls this glory. So when we give ourselves for the sake of Christ and for others, it is glory. It's a brilliance that's in action, moving in the world. And do not miss what I said here. It's for the sake of Christ and others. It is a self-giving sacrifice. This is strength. This is the go-to-bed, tired and exhausted before the Lord. I gave it all today for you, my King, that's the type of strength we're talking about. And there is, there is strength in, in, in wise counsel. There is strength. This is some of the Proverbs, right? There's strength in hearing God's Torah, His law, His word. Um, there is strength in obeying God's word. Uh, but that's why the structure must be met with a positive direction of masculinity. And at the core of, is the enterprise of virtue. One more Lewis quote, if you don't mind. In his famous book, The Screwtape Letters, Lewis speaks of courage in relationship to virtue. And he says this, quote, Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, end quote. So Screwtape, the, the demon, admits to Wormwood, another demon, what he admits is that courage is the prerequisite to a mature masculine strength. In fact, all virtue in men is weighed on the scale of cowardice and courage. It's courage that gives rise to strength when times are tough. Um, would you exhibit prudence in your life? Well, then have the courage to face the unknown future with boldness. Would you be a just man? Then have the courage to deal with others honestly and openly and not cowardly, face to face and not hiding behind text messages, social media, and emails. Would you exhibit temperance? Well, then have the courage to say no, to, to know when to quit, to know how to discern how far is too far. Um, would you exhibit faith in your life, men? hope in your life? Would you exhibit love in your life? Then have the courage to love God's word, stand on God's word, and never move from it. Have gravitas, which according to Calvin is procured by well-regulated morals. See, masculine men are courageous men and not cowards. They do not cower when things get hard. They do not fear their wives and hide behind their wives. They do not fear the world. If there is one thing that the devil would do to ruin men, it wouldn't be, as Lewis admits in that section of the Screwtape Letters, it wouldn't be to make him a coward. How do you deal with a courageous man? And Screwtape says, no, it's not about making him a coward. Otherwise, he's going to learn too much about himself. Rather, it would be to make him despair. Profound. How do you deal with a courageous man? Make him despair. Take his work from him. Lock him up at home. Because everybody needs to panic about something. 
take it away from him. Make him despair. You want to crush civilization? Make a man despair. It's been said that civilizations are built by men with families to feed. Men chop down the trees, they build the homes, and then they give the woman a home to decorate. And this takes courage, it takes stamina, it takes strength. And, and, and if we circumvent courage, we'll remove the organ and demand the function. Courage is severely lacking in the world, and as a result, we have to bear the weight of this gravely important calling. Men without vocation, purpose, and courage are emasculated men, easily manipulated. And that's our nation right now. So, uh, the hymn, God Send Us Men, have you ever heard that hymn? Uh, I stumbled upon it this week. It says it well. God send us men whose aim will be in keeping with our ancient creeds. Submission to our triune God in every thought and word and deed. God send us men alert and quick, his lofty precepts to translate, until the laws of Christ become the laws and habits of the state. Interesting. Theonomic hymn. God send us men of steadfast will, patient, courageous, strong and true, with vision clear and mind equipped, his will to learn, his work to do. God send us men with hearts ablaze, all truth to love, all wrong to hate. These are the patriots nations need. These are the bulwarks of the state. It's a hymn. I think it was written in the 1800s. Huh. We would sing it, but I didn't know the tune, and I wasn't going to try to rush that. <laughs> Let me give you this final word here. May God draw us back to his word, and may God, by the grace shown to us in the gospel and the new identities that we now possess, thanks to Jesus Christ, may he restore masculine men to their God-ordained calling. And that is because the gospel makes men strong. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for what we find here. And uh, we are asking, Lord, for you to bring a revolution of sorts in masculinity, that we would see strong and courageous men standing before kings, standing before rulers, making them cower if they will not submit to the Lordship of Christ. Give us strong masculine men at work, in society, in culture, and help us as we are tempted to despair, as we are oftentimes tempted to want to go our own way Keep us from selfishness and keep us far, far away from disobedience. I pray that you would strengthen the men of this church and all churches who honor you. We ask all of this. May your word go into our hearts, into our minds. May it change us by the power of your spirit. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.